and welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash whymakepodcast or the Patreon link on our website. On this episode of Why Make, we talk with Corey Robinson, an artist and educator who teaches at the Heron School of the Arts in Indianapolis, Indiana. Corey grew up in small-town Indiana and, after traveling and schooling in other parts of the world, returned to his alma mater to become an educator. Corey's work encompasses painting, sculpture, furniture, and design, and in this episode, we discuss what it means to be a studio furniture maker and the impact of the collectible design world on the practice of furniture making. Please hang out with us on this episode as we get nerdy discussing how the art history and furniture worlds coexist. So let's roll into this. And I want to welcome Corey Robinson to the Why Make podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I, I feel honored. Yeah, you're, you're, you will uh, join the, uh, the list of 16 other people we've, <laughs> we've interviewed. The 16 other illustrious people in the wood field. I would say it's a good list. I looked at the list and I haven't listened to all the, the, the podcasts yet, but um, the list is impressive. You know, there's some amazing talents on that list. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I think we're we're trying to shine a light on a on a, a group of makers that you know a lot of people don't know, and if you do know them, it's it's kind of interesting to see to hear in their own words what you know what inspires them, and yeah, I, I dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, and and not only that, but inspire the next generation, which is, you know, the interesting thing is like the last four people we've uh, interviewed have all been educators, and you're you're continuing that line. So we'll definitely we're definitely going to start talking about you know the whole notion of education in the middle of the pandemic and what it means. Um, but we won't we won't go there right now. We'll get there. So we usually start this with the why make question. And the why make question is, what's your first memory of making something? Uh, yeah, um, it's it, kind of hard to capture in one kind of strike. But um, I, I remember being a very, very, very small person, maybe four or five years old. And and I've always talked about this when I think about my interest in making stuff. So it's a good question, you know, that I have a good answer for, but you know, my grandfather, my mom's father was a very active person, you know, always building, always working on, you know, the lake cottage that he had bought as a little fishing shack and turned into a really magnificent cottage. And I think to keep me out of his hair, you know, to, to keep me from bothering him, he would tell me to hammer nails into a board. And then when I was done doing that, he would tell me to pull the nails. And so as a very small person, you know, four or five years old, that's kind of my very first memory of like using a tool. Um, and, you know, if you think about being that age, you know, you can't remember much. You can't remember being really going to kindergarten. Hardly it's, it's tough sometimes. And, but then probably thinking more consciously, like, you know, having my bearings and thinking about being a young person as well. Um, seventh grade industrial, um, industrial arts shop, you know, was my, maybe one of my first engagements with, um, you know, we cast little cast aluminum anvil shapes out of sand, lost, lost wax or something to that effect. 
we made um, actually table lamps. We made table lamps uh, from a design that are great projects for a. Oh yeah, they're really class. that's awesome. Super advanced. You know, and this would have been I don't know not to date myself, but it would have been um, late eight, uh, approaching early nineties, late eighties, somewhere in that range. I, if I had to do the math, I can't do it real quick, but um, those two experiences kind of really, I think are the things I think of in the earliest, very earliest memories of the, the very first things I made. Um, and I had the good fortune. I, I consider it a good fortune uh, of growing up around a, a small family business of auto body collision repair. And, oh, wow. In a very small town that I grew up in, I grew up in a small town of 5,000 people in central Indiana, north central Indiana. Um, and so kind of being around that environment, I saw the skills that it took to put something back together. It wasn't a hot rod shop. It was an insurance collision repair shop. And so you saw everything. At that time, they did full frame restoration and you know now cars are so um the margins on cars are very different in terms of insurance adjustment and stuff and there's a lot of totals now for very minor stuff but back then you know mid to late 80s to early 90s cars were still being pulled out the frames were being corrected the you know um, another amazing memory i have that not many people get to have is going to my grandfather with the south to the salvage yard and watching him take a giant wax crayon and draw on the salvage car, basically half the car that he wanted for the repair they were doing and watching a guy with a carbide a carborundum, you know, kind of basically circular saw cut that off, cut a car in half, basically or a quarter of a car, put it on a trailer and bring it to the shop and watch all put back together. Um, I'd say those those influences were super strong on me when I when I decided to go to art school and I didn't you know I didn't have a lot of there wasn't a lot of college education in my family very um, that wasn't as a family we hadn't really gotten to that point generationally a lot mm-hmm. of people were still you know seeking out you know manual labor jobs or whatever you want to call it trades jobs yeah trades jobs. Um, you know, my grand, it didn't seem like going into auto body repair was something I was, you know, leaning towards, um, though it would have been an amazing career. Um, in some ways, it's changed so much. It's all gotten very digital and advanced. And I think I would have really appreciated the taking that kind of shop that's very analog and very and, and kind of I would have enjoyed bringing it to the next generation. But, I, you know, having starting in college, I identified with going to the art school as kind of my focus and just fell in love with the woodshop environment and tools. And I think, you know, seeing people do things with their hands made sense. I wasn't a big thinker kind of art student. Um, I, I wasn't comfortable in that realm. And honestly, it's still not the art and design stuff I like to make tends to be, you know, pretty cerebrally small. You know, I like design. I like material studies. I like new processes. I don't tend to be, make the art that's going to change the world kind of a guy. I actually, I've got to, I've got to say a little story here because you know, the whole auto body thing really just brings it back for me because <clears throat> when I was first starting grad school, my aborted grad school career at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, one of the other sculpture students, his father owned an auto body shop. And he brought in a 55 gallon, 55 gallon drum of auto body resin. 
and started to started to work on putting auto body resin on an armature. And oh my God, it stunk so bad. It stunk oh, wow. out the it stunk it up the whole gross. <laughs> oh my god. It stunk up the whole wood shop. And Chris Weiland, who was the uh who was the lead instructor in the woodworking program then, just absolutely freaked out. And the rest of us did. It was like, oh my God, what are you doing? <laughs> but it was like, but it was, but it came from a really honest place. I mean, his sure. father, his father owned an auto body shop, and a lot of the kids at IUP were the first generation to yes. go to school, you know, go to school. It was a very working class school mm-hmm. and he was using a material to him that felt very honest and of course was free. Yeah. You know, you know, the same, same kind of idea, you know, you grow up in these environments where health and safety wasn't a priority and, you know, right, right. or maybe lack of education around health risks. And you'd watch a guy spray a car smoking a cigarette, you know, and you're like, whoa, you get to school and everybody's like, what are you doing? You know, you can't wash your hands with lacquer thinner, <laughs> but you can. It works really well. And yeah, that was my first experience in a my first experience in a big cabinet shop was the the uh, the finishing guy spraying a, spraying while smoking a cigarette, spraying lacquer, and it was like I just and you know I, I, coming from a school environment, I freaked out and was like, "What are you doing?" Yeah. What do you mean? I'm spraying the cabinets. I mean, I I always keep those things in the back of my mind because, you know, and it's a lot like I think of my own training experiences versus those that my students seek now. It's it's not that they're lesser. They're very they're just different. You know, and the guys that work for my granddad, I think they didn't have lesser lives. They just had different lives. Maybe the goal and the the quality of life they wanted to attain were different. And, um, you know, and I, I don't like spraying those chemicals. I don't do it in my own furniture and design work, and I don't I didn't like doing it back then. So, so what was that path then to to art school? Because it sounds like a a very different path than the rest of your family. I mean, how yeah. did you how did you end up at Heron, um, given your background? I mean, had you always been been interested in art as, a, say, a high school student? Yeah, yeah, for me it was. For me, it was art, you know, that I know a lot of people in the in in furniture making don't always come from art, but it's something I've always identified with as being an artist who makes furniture. And um, and I make other things. I paint and I draw and uh, I'm planning a big um, series of tufted rugs right now. Oh, that's Um, great. And so when I was a young person, you know, the, the little extracurricular activity that I did, I actually grew up 20 miles from the town of 5,000. So we were very rural. I grew up in the middle of a cornfield. And so, you know, and it wasn't like we were plugged into like, you know, little league soft you know, baseball or anything like, but the very few extracurricular activities I did were to go to a little old lady's house and take, um, painting and drawing lessons from the time I was like 10 till high school. And so when I went, when I just, you know, had the grades and kind of the ambition to go to college, not really understanding what even that meant, just at the time everyone was being browbeaten that if you didn't get a college degree, you weren't going to have a good life. And um, I think some of that sentiment's still true out in the world. Uh, The next expected step. Yeah. And so what felt natural to me was to seek out, programs of art and design because I didn't really know what else, you know, I, I thought maybe engineering or architecture, but I didn't have any guidance. And so I sort of by dumb luck or, or whatever else just fell into something that I was 
you know, gifted at a young age even. And, and I felt prepared for it when I went to undergrad school in a way that probably a lot of kids aren't prepared for now because they're they're not engaged in handwork often the same way. I mean, I worked hard as a young person. And I probably worked harder as a young person than I've ever worked as an adult and mm-hmm. uh, physically. And, you know, kind of knowing my limitations with what I was good at before I even went to college. And um, I don't think that's true for for this generation or maybe not true for my own generation. I'm just a bit of an anomaly. And I think what motivated me was um, I just I wanted to get out. I want to have a different experience. I didn't I didn't particularly like living in small town America. Um, ironically, I, I'm very close to where I grew up still. And I, I was just visiting yesterday. I, I don't get up there much, but had the great occasion to go see my grandfather, which is always wonderful. And, um, you know, I'm glad I chose the path I chose because the the limitations of what the small town experience offered me at the time are still true for me when I go back. I and, you know, I think education was a pivot point for me. I got to see that, you know, making furniture design wasn't just done in the Appalachian style or wasn't just done in appreciation of antiques. It was really a creative force unto itself. And, you know, I'm I'm just young enough to maybe fall in at kind of a really hot, white hot moment for studio art furniture. Um, you know, my career didn't follow the same gallery paths as some of my heroes did, but I learned from some of those heroes in the field and um, got to meet all of them through the furniture society at a young age. And, you know, it was super impressive to me. And and it still is impressive to me when I, when I um, have those opportunities and I just continually be happy, you know, I continually um, think about, what it means to seek education when I'm in the classroom as well, because it means something different to everyone. For some people, it's a lever into another world. So for some people, it's a lever to get a good job or to get a better job. Or um, And for some people, it's extracurricular. You know, I teach a lot of students that don't fit a traditional mold um, because the school I'm at, um, which is the school I was educated at, you know, we can talk about that. I'm kind of full circle. I teach um, for the last uh, almost 18 years here in a couple months. I've taught at Heron School of Art and Design, and I was where I was a student. And in between, I went to San Diego State University. And um, all those experiences, even coming back to the school that I was trained at, um, it's all about the thinking. For me, anyway, it's all about thinking about what those experiences mean to other people, because now I'm the person that is providing those experiences. And um, not, not everyone in the room is going to be a furniture maker. It's not always about that. And I think that that's a very different thing that happens in a school like mine versus a truly trade school. Or um, I had the good fortune of teaching at the Mark Adams School here in Indiana this summer mm-hmm. You with a very different audience there. You're not giving bachelor's degrees there. And so the people that are there are um, usually more established in their hobby or their trade. And they're there to learn technique, which I liked a lot. I taught a design session. So we the five days really focusing on um, the subtlety of design, which you would think is kind of a really integrated part of what I would teach in a bachelor's degree. But I have a limited amount of exposure with those students, even in a bachelor's degree. And so um, with my bachelor's degree students, what we tend to focus on is more holistic. It's like, here's how you work safely in a shop at the Mm -hmm. beginning levels. Here's, how you understand materials. And then it kind of evolves, evolutionary evolves around specific assignments that get someone in front of joinery, get someone in front of design. Yeah. You're doing building blocks. 
Yeah, you do a lot of big chunks of building blocks in education that way. Whereas teaching the workshop environments, you get to be an expert in one thing for a few days and it's a, just a different experience, but very enjoyable as well. I love doing that. Well, I mean, uh, to me, a large part of education is, is opening up people's minds to possibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whether you do that with technique or whether you do that through the introduction of design concepts and ideas, the whole idea is, in my concept of it, is to open up the idea of possibility. So you conceive of things as being a square. Well, they don't necessarily have to be a square. And whether you're working with, you know, hobbyists or students, I think that's the wonderful aspect of education. And I think that's the incredible thing I gained through my woodworking education. I think I could have learned the same things, albeit in a much longer time frame on my own. But to have educators open up my mind to possibilities is, is an incredible gift. I think one of my, you know, special abilities is to reach people individually too. You know, I, I try not to ever, and COVID, you know, the teaching in the COVID environment has really changed what I'm going to be able to do this year because everything is going to have to be very programmed for contact exposure and, you know, how we can support people being in our physical spaces um, through the university system. But um, what I really like to do is work with people individually and it's a lot harder type of teaching, but I don't, I don't create a lot of generic assignments that we all do together. It, it tends to be a lot of um, portfolio building, um, trying to extract the student's strength um, over a, a relatively short period of time um, so that they know what they're good at. Like I always use the example, and this could change at some point in my lifetime, but I'm terrible with veneer. I do not touch veneer ever again. You know, I've learned that my patience, which I have a lot of, it meets its end when I when I start working with veneer and um, I, you know, I kind of use that as an example and a challenge to the students in the classroom with the hope that, you know, I'll have a, an occasional student say, you know what, if, if he doesn't know how to use veneer, I'm going to really dive in deep and show him, you know, and it's not meant to be a subversive sort of way of challenging anybody, but I think humility goes a long way. And um, I'm always the first one to say, you know what, I'm in charge of this classroom, but I don't know everything. I know very little. I know enough about being in front of you and getting your po- getting you to develop a body of work that feels honest. But I'm not going to show you every technique in the world. I just don't simply have it or I don't have the time. And um, with the student, you know, it takes so much time to do what we do um, often. Anyway, it takes a lot of time to do the, the kind of techniques that furniture designers and woodworkers do that. Oh yeah. It's a slow thing. It's uh, it's evolutionary. And so I mean, I find humility goes a long way with trying to meet people where they are. Let's uh, let's talk about your, as you started at Heron and your, your years at Heron, because that kind of was the jumping off point for you as a, a, as a maker and, you know, the beginning of you probably wanting to become an educator too. Yeah, no, that's, it's interesting. I I had no aspirations of being an educator. And um, I think what my early, um, earliest education in the art school environment showed me was I'm the kind of creative person that works extremely well when there's a a boundary box around the creativity, you know, and furniture is a great boundary box because it has to relate to human scale. It has to relate to architectural scale. Um, Inside of those two things, there's a lot of room for it to be everything from wild to mild, historic to contemporary, wherever your your vantage point lies. But um, uh, 
I learned quickly that I thrived in a kind of creative realm that had a certain framing to it. And for me, that became the identity, being a furniture design student, ultimately a furniture design educator slash maker. That started early because I just, I had great mentorship. Um, I can't speak highly enough about my retired colleague, Phil Tennant, who was my mentor at the time when I was a student. We went through with an amazing group of um, young people, um, Chris Bowman, Matt Hutton, Nick Hollibal, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, a number of others in other design areas too, in, in, in the furniture design area. It was just a really exceptional, almost Renaissance time where this is all your class at Heron. Yeah. You know, uh, I finished in 99, but that whole, you know, 90 through early 2000s frame was just a, a super white hot energy time frame for the school. And, um, I feel extremely lucky to have great colleagues, you know, like people that are still in the art and design field that started with me as young people, you know, many of us, actually, it was just a really special time. And then, you know, that, that environment was, was, was really cultured by mentorship. You know, we would have social gatherings at our mentors home, you know, they would open up their house to have all the students of the department over, you know, once or twice a year. And it was really about community building. And I, I don't think I had had much of that because like I said, I, I, I grew up in a pretty isolated environment, you know, it was pretty rural and that we were 20 miles from the most rural epicenter of, uh, of where we lived. And so I really loved that. And, and I was, I was the kind of student that, um, is tough and that I, I wasn't, a, I wasn't verbal. I didn't really, I didn't talk to anybody. I was just <laughs> super dedicated to my work and I didn't party. And I, uh, it's not that I didn't like to have fun. I just didn't have any of those experiences yet when I was a young person, I took myself very seriously. And there's probably still some truth to that. You know, people that know me would say, yeah, he presents pretty seriously, but I like to have a lot of fun too. But those early experiences and mentorship were, were, were super important. And I got to be whatever age you are when you finish your undergraduate degree, if you do it traditionally, I think at 22, 21, 22. Mm-hmm. And I just knew I didn't have enough understanding of what I even wanted to do with the things I had learned about. And so mm-hmm. to graduate school, not, not necessarily to become an educator. That was the furthest thing from my mind. I mean, I could barely hold a conversation with a stranger, you know, and <laughs> what made me think I was going to lead a classroom, nothing. That was not a goal. Um, so you just wanted to learn more about what you were already learning. I wanted to have footing under me before I decided what I wanted to do with what I knew. And that, that's all, that's all easy to say in hindsight. When I was young, I was just, it's just sort of a continuum and energies took you a certain direction. And, you know, a, a really dear friend of mine, who's also a furniture maker, educator, Matt Hutton and I, we went to undergraduate school together with the, the strong group I alluded to other, you know, members of that group have stayed local. Brian Presnell, um, who runs Indie Urban Hardwoods here in town, a real, just a really tight group. But Matt and I decided to pursue graduate school at the same time. And so we also ended up going to graduate school at the same program. And actually, I just wanted I just wanted to step back for a sec. We threw the word studio furniture out a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of want to get at the kernel of that because not to jump the shark here, but you went to graduate school at San Diego State and you studied studied under Wendy Murayama, mm-hmm. also as Jason Snyder described her as Mama Yama. Yeah. <laughs> and that is the that is that that's like the epicenter of the studio furniture movement. Yeah. And I think we'd be remiss 
if we didn't at least try and define the terms. And quite frankly, I can't. I, I, I mean, I know that before that, people used this term that everybody rejected called artichure, mm-hmm. which was where furniture and art met. And then somebody, I think it was a an historian, an art historian came up with the term studio furniture, studio made in people's furniture, I mean, furniture made in people's private studios, but it was a whole movement, more individualist art-based furniture, but I still can't define it. So I'm yeah. kind of curious, you know, since we're going to, that term's been thrown around, can you nail it down? And actually, Rob, I'd like to know what your take is on <laughs> studio. I don't know what it means, yet we use this term. Maybe I'll have Rob's version and then I'll reply. Um, I mean, when I when I wasn't really introduced to it until you know I went to Haywood, I just knew that I wanted to make stuff out of wood. And then as I'm learning from Wayne Rabb at Haywood Community College, you know he's talking about these different movements. You know, we're learning about Shaker Furniture and Bauhaus and blah 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 everything. And you know, studio studio furniture comes up. So that's what I really I didn't know about it until then. And to me, it was just like. To me, it was art furniture. It was furniture that dared to be different. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I still see it as. It's stuff that's a little bit different. You can still sit on it. You could still use it as a table, but it's got a bit more of a fierceness to it. You know, it's more more individualized. They're the more one of a kind kind of pieces. You know, it's not something that you're going to see. There's going to be 10,000 of them. I mean, yeah, if a company buys it and makes the design, but to me, it was just about more uh more of an individual artistic piece of furniture yeah i i don't see it that un undifferently than different that differently than either of you it is hard to pin down because in terms of art movements or design movements or any kind of categorical definition of a of sort of a creative field when you're living in it it doesn't make sense when somebody puts a name on it but (laughs) i think you know, we're we're almost maybe getting to the tail end of what studio furniture was being defined by at its time, though I don't think the practice of making studio furniture, as we're calling it, has ended. It's only grown. It's really actually majorly expanded, but I'll talk about that a little in a bit. But I think studio furniture, as I understood it and as I talk about it now, at the time, that I was being educated about it, it was it was really white hot. There were these luminaries in the field that had been working at that time for 20, 30 years that were starting to gain enormous traction and the, the value of their work being shown and the monetary value for their work being sold. And those luminaries are um, you know names that you would all recognize that I think of, you know, the Wharton Asterix, the Nakashimas, the the um the Wendell Castles, the uh, you know, the the first and second and third wave generation as historians that study studio craft like to, to talk about. Um, problem is furniture design doesn't neatly fit into categories because it competes so widely with everything from manufactured furniture to architecture design, architect design furnishings. And so I think studio furniture became almost like a, a club. And in, you know, I feel lucky to have known and learned from these really significant players in the field, many of whom are still making. And I've always thought of studio furniture as really representative as of sort of the artistic model of learning how to be a creative where your portfolio evolves around the things that you're interested in and your work may change radically from one series to the next, but you're the person that 
performing it, not the client. And um, I've started to hear a lot of people that were helping define the studio furniture movement in the, the 90s period of time when it seemed so, so important to the studio craft field as as a decorative arts period. And I think Rob alluded to this, you know, that when we think of Art Nouveau or we think of arts and crafts movement, I think historians might actually glom onto this idea that studio furniture is a creative and movement that is not defined particularly by a unique style, but rather a way of working in the studio, almost the way an artist works yeah. in the studio, but being a furniture maker. Yeah. And actually, it ties into a comment you made earlier, which I really loved. When you were talking about being an educator, you said allowing the students to create work that feels honest to them. And to me, that seems integral to the studio furniture Mm -hmm. movement because it's really what's driving the ideas is you and what feels honest to you, not necessarily a history of what's been done or what should be done, but there's an honesty in the term. I, I have to admit, I hate the term because I don't think it explains anything. It's like the least explanatory, you know, there's all these other great words to explain, or descriptive terms that explain other movements, right? gestural art, uh, what Pollock did, whatever. But studio furniture yeah. movement doesn't, I mean, you might as well say it's the door movement. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> kind of on, on what you were saying too, Corey, it's like you said, when this movement is named, Movements aren't named until usually after they're done, a long time after they're done, usually. And they're not named by the makers themselves. No, they're named by the people that we, you know, makers, you know, we live in also we live we live when you live in the real time of of a particular movement. I don't think the, uh, you know, some of the players in the early 80s thought of themselves as sort of postmodernists, you know, in real time. But maybe they did. I don't know. Was Droog Furniture called Droog Furniture when it was Droog Furniture? I, I doubt it. Maybe 10 years later. <laughs> in, in, in some ways, what's funny is my, my experiences are so closely linked with what we call a studio furniture experience or movement or education that um, I've not become a general, general expert of, of all the other fields. You know, I know a lot about design history and I care a lot about it, but my expertise and the, the things that I know at great depth about are in studio furniture. The I used to always joke and it's starting to become true, but I used to joke that there'll be a day when I don't have students that care about the lineage between me studying with Wendy Marayama or me studying with Phil Tennant and Phil Tennant having worked for Wendell mm-hmm. Castle. And those days are kind of true now because I think I'm of a at the tail end of a generational mode where we learned a lot through books and publication and we we really held some of these or you know few publications about studio furniture held them true. Um, I think of Ned Cook's book New American Furniture was sort of like my bible when you know uh, for design because there wasn't a lot of education about historical or otherwise about studio furniture in real time and actually I think it might have been Ned Cook that that uh, coined the term studio furniture. Now that you come at Ned Cooks, he's an art historian at, at Yale, I believe. Right. It's been a while since I revisited with him, but um, you know, so like new American furniture was a, a really excellent book for me because it, 
was a pretty broad spectrum look at what was yeah. happening in the studios of furniture makers around the country at the time. Now, the problem some felt was it was exclusionary. It was sort of the, you know, I, I say some, you know, being part of that category, the, the idea that certain members of the studio furniture community got really heralded and their work grew in immense value and the, the show opportunities and museum collection opportunities really were exceptional for, for a very few that were alive and working. And when those reputations become commodities, just like the art world, people want to buy and sell and trade in those commodities. And then some doors get shut for other people that maybe want to pursue that. But, you know, it is what it is. And I think that's why I think what that's why art world and design world and working in this mode as an individual maker that's making things that you want the world to consume, you have to be like a shark. You're always moving. You're always trying to find an audience. And a lot of furniture makers don't like that. Um, so they, they would rather identify with particular kinds of work that they're gifted at, that they want to work with interior designers to do this particular style of thing. And I, I try to talk about that a lot in my education because I realized that time that studio furniture was held up in the way that we're talking about it anyway has has maybe passed a, a little bit. Now, I, I think there's a whole other thing that's that studio furniture makers don't call studio furniture that's happening right now. The word design has matured immensely in terms of art and art design mm-hmm. circles. You see young people really identifying, coming out of art and design schools, calling themselves designers as a priority in their the way they market themselves. You see a lot of you see much more limited production high value, high, high, mar- highly marketed and sold value um, objects being made now than you did when I was a student. That was really something you only saw happening in Europe or other markets. Mm-hmm. But you know, now in the United States, there are galleries in New York and LA and places where we move these kinds of goods to the people where you're, you can see limited production work being done by basically studio art, studio furniture people. Actually, and, and there's two key points that you just you just really nailed on the head because I was thinking I'm a couple years older than you guys, about 15, <laughs> and my entree, entree, whatever, however you say <laughs> that word, to the studio furniture world really was was the Memphis movement sure. and Ettore Sotsas. Well, I'm going to butcher that name. Italians, I forgive me. Ettore Sotsas. I mean, the whole Memphis, which was limited yeah. production work. It was high-end Italian furniture that was really based conceptually because a lot of it was really funky. But it was truly, it was done in, in it was mass-produced work. And that, I think, led to a lot of the studio furniture movement. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I think what's leading us out of the studio furniture movement and using the word design is possibly new mass production techniques and, you know, and 3D printers and, and a lot of the stuff that we can do these days where you don't necessarily have to manually manipulate the materials. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I, I I have admiration and I'm also disheartened by some of the things I'm seeing happen. I mean, I, I, I love that there's a people my age and younger and older, uh, all spectrum still pursuing the, these uh, material investigations, but there's also a lot of like really almost like fast fashion for oh, yeah, design, yeah. That's, you know, where the materials aren't vetted. They're, they're, they're over intellectualized um, for what they are. They don't have, sincerity at their core. I alluded to this earlier when I talk about my teaching and, you know, trying to help one find their way to their natural gifts. 
I feel like there's there's a certain amount of the art and design world that's always going to overlook that sincerity part in favor of the shiny yeah, and the yeah. fast high commodity. You can't have ill will towards it because it's just it's, the way it's, it works. It's part but, of the overarching industry. I mean, and yeah, and I kind of joke. You know, there's a lot of the a lot of young makers that use resins and really oh, um, don't don't get us started. Unproven techniques that we saw happening in the early 80s with even manufactured furniture in the 70s as well with um, experimental uses of foam. Well, some of those pieces don't exist anymore. The foam has degraded down to nothing and the restoration on them is near impossible. And I think you're going to see a wave of what we call collectible design now. You know, I'm seeing that word quite a bit, the idea of collectible design really superseding what I knew of as studio furniture. This notion of collectible design where it's made specifically for primary and secondary auction houses and it's moved through art markets. It's not moved through galleries. And it's foreign, I think, to a lot of the ways that I was trained and think I don't have ill will towards it. I think it's kind of interesting. I I think um, what Eric mentioned, that the notion that it can uh, supercharge things like... uh, the, the use the experimental uses of 3d printing and actually fund an artist to buy time on a printer or to build a printer because they know that they're going to pre-sell five editions of a chair that's yeah. going to you know be a quarter million each or something and, and you you can see these examples in the collectible design world and it, it's a little bit of a foreign animal i think to the those that studied woodworking as the core of their practice because wood is a i always call wood you know, really one of the most humble materials, right? It's, but it's, but it's also um, one of the most difficult materials. It's also one of the most advantageous materials for humankind. When you think about how wood and plants have leveraged our species forward for thousands of years from building heat to shelter, to food production, et cetera, none of that really matters when you're working in the collectible design world and you're you're 3D printing aluminum, you know, and, and who cares um, where that ash comes from, you know? Yeah. You know, the environmental impacts of it are, are not emphasized. And, and I think all furniture making has a lot of room to grow when it comes to thinking about being conscious about usage. But I think some of this, the fast fashion kind of design that I see is really disheartening in that those objects might sell for many, many thousands of dollars at price points that are almost astonishing but the long-term health of the object whether it's even in a museum it may not last the resins are going to break down there's going to be confluences between materials that aggravate each other over time and I think those of us that studied woodworking have a core of what we do anyway have a real strong appreciation for like well I know how this was done 300 years ago and if I do it the same way now this piece is going to be here 300 years it's going to work yeah, actually, I've never heard that term collectible design, but, you know, sign me up. Yeah, yeah. You, you ready, Rob? Totally not. No, no way. But it, it, it's interesting that collectible design, you know, you're talking about there, there are chairs that are probably thousands of dollars a piece for, for dining chairs. And then then you see the knockoffs at Anthropology and Crate and Barrel and Ikea the next year. And then you have clients asking you, oh, I saw it there. Can you make it for me? It's this weird evil circle. Well, it's it's something that's been um, really at the core of fashion design 
since its inception, you know, the idea that you would have these these runway approaches, these really elaborate, extravagant kind of approaches to design that you wear. And it trickles down. And, and it kind of, you know, becomes a more consumable object. The thing that I don't think many of us took um, to heart when we were being trained is how fickle um, design trends can be when it comes to that world. You know, when you when you takes you three months to make a piece out of wood, the the fickle nature of design doesn't isn't as appealing sometimes. Yeah. And it takes them three hours to punch it out on a computer. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I don't have any ill will no, towards no. it. I, I'm actually quite inspired by it, though. You know, my own practice tends to be kind of rooted in what I know really well. You know, working with materials, mm-hmm. maybe even even as I experiment with other modes, like. I'm doing some bronze fabrication now. It's pretty traditional stuff. You know, we've been casting bronze for thousands of years. It's yeah. not like brand new technology. So, but for me, it's, it's new because I've, I've primarily used wood as my material forever. You scratched the surface here, this whole, and again, totally new term to me, collectible. Uh, what are you, do you call it? It was collectible, collectible design. design, collectible design. Mm-hmm. And I immediately, when you say that, I have ill will towards it. And when, whenever I have, whenever I have a real knee jerk reaction like that, I, well, no, I want to explore it. Why am I having such a negative reaction to it? And I can, I can enumerate a couple of things right off. I mean, one, just, I don't think of it as honest in terms of you're making this incredible presumption that what you've created is going to have some sort of mass appeal which I think, again, these are my knee-jerk uh, negative responses, I think is sort of the antithesis of where an artist should go. It's just not honest to make an assumption that this concept is uh, is going to be successful and, and sell. It just doesn't seem coming from a, it doesn't seem coming from an artist's mindset. And yet I think it's perfectly okay for artists to make money, believe me. I just think that you have to have, it has to come from an honest place. And I'm not so sure the whole notion of assuming something that's going to be collectible is coming from an honest place. So, so, so Rob, well, school me here. What's wrong uh, well, with my I thinking? Well, I think that there are parts of it that are honest, then also dishonest. I mean, there's, there's different levels to that manufacturing. You know, you're going to find the people that really care about what they're doing and they're, they're not putting it out for mass consumption like that. You know, they're call it bespoke or commission or, you know, smaller scale. Um, so the, I think the idea of it being mass consumed is what throwing you off, Eric. Right. And, and, and let's be honest here. Let, let's get to the elephant in the room. Or at least Rob and I know what the elephant in the room is, which is these mass produced resin river tables <laughs> that if either of us see another one of them, we're just gonna, we're just gonna scream. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I mean, it's not to dismiss, you know, the, the early pioneers of that aesthetic, but I'm, I'm afraid it's going to be an aesthetic that defines the 2010s. Well, what, what, wasn't it, sorry, Eric, what is, wasn't it a, a, a maker and I've, I know there was a beautiful article about him in American craft in like 2014 or 15, but he did that whole look with glass. So it was glass and wood. Um, Greg, Greg Casson. Yes. And that was really, and it wasn't resin, but then everything that's resin after that looked like that. And what he did was a whole different technique and a concept to me. That's where I saw that element starting. And then it just, let's make it simpler. Let's make it faster. This is how we could do it. And that's, 
to me, that looked like where it came from. Well, you got kind of two things meeting each other there too. You've got the the resin, and you've got the Wayne the Edge slab. or the natural yeah, edge. Yeah. You know, there. I haven't necessarily banished or put a moratorium on them, but I'm <laughs> very clear. And we're not doing resin pours, and we're not doing Wayne Edge tables because it's so derivative now. You know, and but there are moments where those things had their their time, and they they. Some of it is because it's attainable, too. It, it looks good in a lot of environments. Um, it's hard not to appreciate the beauty of wood and the kind of the myster- mysterious stuff that happens in the, in the resin. Yeah. But it, I think the time's passed on that aesthetic. And, you know, we got to move on. You know, you got to keep you got to keep moving like a shark if you want to or not. Yeah. And, you, you know, I, I, whenever we talk about those kinds of things in class, and I talk a lot like I'm a teacher because I've, that's what I do. But I, I'm very quick to say, you know, look, Nakashima and some of these, um, you know, even deep cultural references from, from more native cultures that use these kinds of aesthetics preempted all of this work by, you know, half a century or yeah. centuries at this point. And, it kind of brings me to a point that I've been thinking about a lot lately, too, having been someone that really coveted libraries in my own education and sought out publications and stole <laughs> catalogs from, you know, Wendy's library. Don't tell her, um, you know, show catalogs that I have current office came from the SDSU, you know, furniture library. I'm oh, sure of I it. lived in Haywood's library. I loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. I think what I've been trying to reconcile a little bit is the access to visual information is so um, readily available for for all of us. Most of us keep a a computer in our pocket. And the idea of finding unique ideas has sort of changed for me. I I actually have embarked on work where I'm actually looking for similarities with other people's work more than I am looking for my work to stand out. It's so contrary to how I've ever worked, and it's contrary to sort of the studio furniture movement in general. Um, and I don't know what that is. I've been trying to put words to it, but really starting with this newer body of work I've been doing, I'm finding references across, you know, a 100-year span. But specifically, social media allows me to find contemporaries working in very similar aesthetic to me. And there used to be a time in my life where I'm like, well, I got to change my aesthetic. I got to, I got to find my own thing. Now you're just embracing it. Now I know that it's my own thing. I'm just admiring people that work very closely to this, the way I work. That's a, that's a good way to look at it and, and not get crushed by the competition. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that sounds a bit direct and callous, but to just recognize that there are a lot of people out there doing a lot of things. Well, if you think about the world's population having doubled, if not more than doubled since since I was born in 77, harder and harder and harder to compete when all everyone's ideas are actually published in real time. And it used to be there was a synthesis that happened. You know, somebody might have spent 20 years developing an idea like a Wharton Estrick, and then a historian or, or a gallerist had to, to develop that into a consumable thing that they could turn into a collectible item. And now... It's very different. You know, you can go from prototyping an idea one day, publishing it as a finished object the next. Many, many more millions of people are doing that. Yeah. I feel lucky to have been having having a foot in both camps because I feel like it feels more manageable now. I understand what the process is about. Whereas I think some of my students are really inundated with this stimulus. And I'm I'm not speaking for them. I'm just trying to I think they would probably word it differently, but there has to be a lot of anxiety around the idea that any idea you you think of and put on paper and put out to the world 
you can probably find five or six or seven people working right now that by happenstance have very similar ideas yeah. as you. Well, do you want to, do you want to talk about some of that recent work? Oh uh, yeah, sure. I, I, um, I've kind of put my work on the back burner for a while. I, I've been really entrenched in our school leadership and, um, it's very consuming. And, and for the last probably about 12 years, that was my primary identity. I was the chair of the fine arts department, which was at the time 26 faculty lines. This is at Heron where you're teaching. At, at Heron where I teach now. And, um, it was, it was a pretty consuming part of my life. And so it didn't leave a lot of room for me to develop these evolving bodies of work like I had been used to doing up until really kind of taking on those leadership identities. And so more recently, I've kind of been trying to go back the other way and and um, and find my way back to studio and teaching as a priority as much as I can and still retain the ownership of title that I have as a, as a professor at our school. But a year ago, well, a little over a year, a year and a half ago, I was able to go to Australia for two months and, and oh, study cool. at Australian National University, which is a really amazing campus in Canberra that a lot of Americans have gone to, but specifically Ashley Erickson, um, who's an American um, trained in the studio furniture community that I know, you know. And you went to San Diego State as well, didn't she? Um, she did a residency there, but I oh, think okay. she had gone to RISD for graduate school. Oh, that's right. You know, kind of staying connected to my peers, an opportunity opened up there and I had some funding to go on my side. And so it just worked out. I was able to go for two months and I I had been reeling with developing kind of some new work for myself, really developed this really over intellectualized body of work that I got some grant funding for around the political power of objects. And uh, bear with me. I I, know. I I dove into this only at surface level, um, and it's still something I'm somewhat interested in. But looking at the um, iconic furnishings of the world's most powerful leaders and specifically thinking about a a Politico article that had gained a lot of traction at the time comparing sort of the the White House, the furnishings of the White House under the current administration with dictatorial um, palaces around the, the world and sort of seeing demarcating similarities and being critical, being critical of those similarities, of course. But it got me thinking about not necessary to dive deep on the politics of it, but the the power of objects. And I had thought that I was going to go to Australia and spend two months designing out four really significant installations that would um, that would really pull apart a, a, a wide spectrum of the power of chairs. And, um, and then Jamal Khashoggi was murdered mm-hmm. um, yeah. during the same time frame. The journalist uh, um, worked for the Washington Post, I believe. And so then I got to thinking, well, the coverage of all that was so bizarre and fascinating and, and confusing. <laughs> to watch, confusing. All, all you saw was the, um, these, uh, embassy doors that had a very um, emblazoned sort of double sword. And so I thought about, oh, well, the power of those doors could be an interesting object to replicate in the gallery. So I had all these things kicking around that, that I had a really. Um, and that would be the, the embassy doors of the Saudi Arabian yeah. embassy in, yeah, in, in Turkey. In, in, Tur- in Turkey. Exactly. So Sorry. Just to clarify. No, just to clarify. Yeah. And uh, if you look that, you can Google image that. Um, time frame, if you just Google Jamal Khashoggi, Khashoggi's um, 
name, those the images of those embassy doors usually come up because it was really the only thing people knew to focus on visually. Mm-hmm. So I had that in my mind. I had um, palatial furnishings of Saddam Hussein's palaces when we overtook the, the leadership there and seeing the American troops photographed on these objects, almost like a tourist destination. It was kind of bizarre. And so I've been compiling these really heavy ideas around the power of objects. And um, I was going to gear up to make those. And I got to Australia with the intent of doing that and proposing to do that. And I had never tried to make art or do be, be a creative person abroad. Um, I've not had a lot of experiences abroad. I have been abroad, um, but not as much as others. And I just didn't, I fell out of love with creating political, um, political, politically charged work in a country that was also very politicized and battling and reeling with some similar things as the United States in terms of power structures and environmental and just, I won't say complete upheaval because it's far from that, but it just, it just didn't feel right. And so I kind of (laughs) just, I reverted back completely to the other end of the spectrum. And I started making these um, really modernist shape drawings and paintings and and I got consumed by them and I fell in love with doing them in a way that I hadn't really been attracted to my own art making in a long time. And so I always saw them as the beginnings of sort of a design language and I'm still working in that language. It's very much rooted in sort of a modernist approach to shape making. Um, I joke that, you know, a lot of the people that see it probably think, oh, well, this is such a primary school kind of language. But I've actually spent a lot of time studying it. I almost see it as like a language now, um, the shapes that I'm using, the color palettes. And so I've been then the next evolution felt for me to take that into back to object making. And so at the time, the end of my time in Australia, I made like maybe 50 or 60 of these paintings. Oh, you're going nuts. That's awesome. So are they, are they paintings or are they, are they prints? They're paintings. And um, people kind of confuse them as prints because they're um, a very clean line painting, a very meticulous furniture making way of putting a, a paper. It's very, very um, meticulous. Let's just say mm-hmm. that. And um, it's almost like joinery <laughs> with all of it fitting together. Right. Yeah. I mean, I kind of saw them as silhouettes of potential forms yeah. I would make. And so I did prototype a number of table forms mm-hmm. proved to be very expensive to ship them from Australia back. So I, I didn't bring types home, but they resonated and I continue making the paintings, continue evolving the ideas. I was invited by a dear friend of mine, Kim Winkle, to go to Aramont School, does a winter session called Pentaculum, where they invite, I I don't know, maybe you've had others talk about it. They invite, you know, basically professional artists to come down and spend the week in the Aramont Studios in Gatlinburg. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just a really amazing space. And Gatlinburg has its own quirky charms. You know, it's a Eastern Tennessee, if for folks that don't know Aramont. Yeah, Eastern Tennessee. And um, so at in that time frame, I was still trying to um, pull together the image making and the object making. And I made a, a lamp prototype that is sort of a, a new kind of object for my career. I made a lot of lighted objects or even what I would call lamps. And I got really excited about them. And so I've been making those for the last biggest part of a year and they are basically a, a, a sort of a base structure with a, a, a reflective shield, um, kind of a contemporary 
style lamp. I, I've seen a lot of other designs out there that em, embrace a similar refre- reflective shield. But mm-hmm. what I'm trying to do with mine is use the shield as a place to experiment with bas relief carving and bas relief woodworking techniques. I had a the good fortune of uh, getting some local grant funding for the arts, and I used all of that funding to hire a fabricator to turn four. I'm going to do a limited ex- series of four of them because that's what I could afford to do them in bronze. Oh, that's great. We're having the bases cast and then the shields because metal gets wonky when it's really, really hot in the casting. We're doing the shields as fabrications instead of castings. So I'm intrigued by what's going to be the the slightly organic qualities of casting against the more rigid qualities of the fabrications. And I think the fabricated bronze will look a lot like my paintings that I've been developing because the fabricator used a laser to cut all the bronze shapes. And instead of plug welding them onto the shields, they're actually using a uh, auto collision repair grade two-part epoxy. So you don't have any distortion at all, which I find interesting. He, he is really gifted fabricator for artists and designers and a gifted artist himself. His, his name is Brian McCutcheon, and he runs Ignition Arts, which is based here in Indianapolis. He talked me through it, and he said, I think we're going to fabricate these shields. And so they're out. They're almost done, I think, now, the part that they're going to do, which I'm super excited to see the parts come back. And I will sandblast finish them. I will patina them. Um, it's not a completely hands-off turnkey thing that I'm giving over to someone else, but yeah. it is definitely a new experiment for me. And it's all derivative of this investment that I made in, in, in finding value and doing these little paintings and drawings and, and really researching at depth some of my, my modernist heroes like Noguchi and Brancusi and finding out relationships between them and finding out, you know, Noguchi had spent a summer here in Indiana at camp, you know, in Northern Indiana and you know, just kind of going deep on some research that I felt like I had not done in a long, long time. I really love how those lamps and with the shields are, they're just riffing off of, you know, you know, they're progressing and riffing off of what you're doing. It, it seems like an obvious, obvious way to take those shapes into, into another function. And, and I'm not so sure that they're that disassociated from your original concept of, you know, the doors of the Saudi embassy. They have a very, they have a very, I don't want to say Middle Eastern feel, because yeah. that's just feels a little racist. Uh, no, I mean, they have that, that they definitely have a feel of what's that word of of majesty. No, they do them. almost like they're a, very like a strong. Yeah, exactly. They have a very and again, you know, shields are very powerful statements of of strength. Absolutely. It's a good point. I hadn't really I hadn't really thought of it in those same terms, but I appreciate what you're saying because I I love the idea of objects power, you know, elevating. I like to make things that are elevated, you know, that I do like to make things that people do have a hard time figuring out how to live with. It doesn't necessarily pay well, but um you know, finding the, the, the challenging points and how objects present in environments. And these, are, these aren't really that challenging to me. I think you would find a lot of environments they would fit into nicely, but they do bridge across a number of interests of mine from things like surface design and patterning. I actually, I hadn't really made this connection till just now, but I've always kind of dismissed M.C. Escher's work. And Rob had mentioned the shirt I'm wearing has this kind of crazy pattern on it. And I never even thought about it. But when we were in Australia, we were Laura and I were able to go down to uh, Melbourne. Uh, we were in um, Sydney, Canberra 
area, but we, we went down to Melbourne and in the National Gallery there, they were hosting this MCA. What gallery? The National Gallery. Oh, yeah, gallery. yeah, yeah. I've been, my brother lives in Melbourne and uh, uh-huh. I've been in the National Gallery too. It's, it's a fantastic it, museum. It's amazing. It's, it's, and that MC Escher show actually toured here at the North Carolina Museum of Art. Incredible show. I love that show. Incredible. And it was partnered and designed by a um, Japanese design firm called Nendo, um, who in his own right, he, he's an amazing designer. Um, I believe his last name's Nendo, but his firm's called Nendo. Uh, the, the idea of kind of tessellations or these pattern making exercises is something that was inherent in the paintings I was doing. But the show and the way the show was designed in the National Gallery there in Melbourne was so impressive to me. Uh, I can't help but think that I'm trailing some of that energy onto this new work, you know, trying to find ways of the pattern and tessellation and um, maybe the things, Eric, that you're referring to is sort of feeling Middle Eastern in their, 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 the way you're reading them may feel more like MC Escher tessellations to someone else. And the truth is, all those things are connected. You know, I, I, I really love some of those things that happen. And, and for me, when, when you're designing objects, it's hard to, it can be hard to bring image to object. You, you see great examples of it historically where you'll, you might find, um, you know, arts and crafts movement pieces, even that have these little special moments of veneer marquetry mm-hmm. or Art Nouveau pieces that have sort of an emblem that's painted or even going back to the ages, um, cabinets of curiosity and things like that, that have image. And so I've always sort of loved this idea that image and object are, are, and for me, image is these patterns because I present these paintings as standalone paintings. And so I, I've been kind of thinking about this idea of image and object for a long time. I, I do a freshman project with my students where we take Really, it's at their design, their discretion, if you will, to take sort of any image and turn it into an object. So we we do laser cut acrylic and we illuminate those. And so all of a sudden they're drawing, if it's a hand drawing or maybe it's a pattern, it becomes a, lamp, a lighted object or a lamp. And so I've been dealing with it with the students for a little while, but I haven't ever really translated it into my own work until just this series. And I feel like I'm going to be working on this for a while because I have a I have a ton of ideas still, like everything from piercing, you know, the shield forms being pierced to the shield forms maybe becoming more, um, more than just one sided, you know, multiple shields on a single piece lamps that are floor standing, but they sit at like the four foot mark so that they're really quite sculptural in a space. Um, these are all things I'm thinking through kind of in real time. um, Yeah, it's, it's fun for me and it feels great to be excited about my studio again. And, um, I, I've always, you know, when I was doing the administrative work that was so demanding and kind of a time sink, I used to joke, like, do you call yourself an artist or a designer if you don't make anything? I think of that these days because I've just felt so inspired, uninspired in these days of COVID, but I'm still thinking, you know, I think the beautiful thing about what you're doing, Corey, is is, is that and we've touched this many times is, is that you're really staying honest to the work. I mean, you you've you've found a path through this work that feels honest and true to who you are. So I've got to really applaud that. And I, I think we're going to wrap this up here. But, you know, thanks for for joining the Why Make Project. Uh, we really appreciate it. And why make? Why make? Why make? 
You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.